If you have your Bible with you this morning, how about if you take it out and open it up to Matthew chapter 21, and maybe at the same time, uh, put a finger in Acts chapter 17. I think you're going to want to be in both places because we're going to go to both those positions this morning. I want to pray with you in in just a minute. Um, While you're turning there, just uh, think this thought through. We, back in September, looked at a, a, a declaration of truth. Um, in September, we did a short four-part series called Revealing Jesus. Some of you are here for that, and you, you remember that series. And in the midst of that series, Revealing Jesus, we came to this conclusion that God the Son condescended to become Jesus the man. The, the Jesus of history that we understand, that we read about in the Bible, has always existed, and, and that's, a, that's a kind of a newsflash for some people, that God the Son became Jesus the man. While you chew on that thought, I want to pray with you as we pray to the Father right now through God the Son. And we come to him in the name of Jesus. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, because of what he did for us. When you put on flesh and you inhabited this earth and you came to the place where you had to give your life, you, you brought us to the place where we have free access. And so we speak your name and recognize that just by uttering the name of Jesus, we're ushered right into the presence of your throne room. As a people, we're gathered together this morning and we've willingly lifted up praise to you because you're worth it. And now we turn our attention to your word because your word is trusted and it's infallible. Your word is true, and it's, it's righteous. So God, we know that you can use it to speak into our life. As we ponder this great truth about you coming to this earth and taking on flesh, God, I ask that you would cause it to resonate within our hearts so we would really seize what that means. I pray for every man, woman, and student that's gathered here this morning where you need to speak to us, where you need to bring conviction, where you need to bring refreshment, where you need to bring encouragement. God, I ask that you would do that. I pray that on behalf of my friends here. In Jesus' name, I ask for it. Amen. So we, we have this truth in our mind that God the Son became Jesus the man, the condescension of God. And I can back that up from Scripture, John 1.1. John 1.1 says that in the beginning meaning before time. In the beginning was the Word. It's another name for Jesus, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So whatever else you may know about Jesus, whatever else you may think you know this morning, do not leave here without seizing the reality of that truth, that Jesus is God. Amen, church? Okay, that, that is the truth of Scripture. It is what differentiates Christianity from everything else on this planet. No one else can claim that. No one else will claim that except true believers in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. So here we go with the next step. Because he is God, I can believe all that he has done. Everything that is recorded in Scripture is truth to me because he is God, and only God can accomplish what we read about in the Bible that it says that Jesus accomplished. 
So that takes us to the next truth. And if you haven't been at New Hope very long, you may not have heard this statement, but you'll hear it a lot if you hang around here. This thought is true of us because we say it a lot. What you believe about God determines what you do next. So if you believe that God the Son condescended and became Jesus the man putting on flesh and that he went to the cross for us, you have to do something with that. What you believe about God determines what you do next. So here's what I believe. This may not be where you're at, but this is what Mark Kring believes. I believe that God the Son willingly relinquished his throne in glory. That he willingly surrendered that place and he condescended to put on flesh, becoming one of us to accomplish God's purposes. Keep that thought in the forefront of your mind and it has huge significance for this week ahead of you. If you're not familiar with church language, it's called the Passion Week. The Passion of the Christ. It's not by accident that Mel Gibson named his movie that way, The Passion of the Christ. This week ahead of us, this Sunday to next Sunday, it's Passion Week. And that thought that God the Son became Jesus the man affects everything that happened during that week. So even though you and I were not there to witness the events of those uh, things that unfolded during that particular week, we have this gift to us. It's called God's Word. And in this word, we have this gift from eyewitnesses who got to see the God-man in action. They got to watch what he did day in and day out. And one particular image that we get from them is kind of unsettling. You might even consider it a little unnerving in the midst of the Passion Week, and you'll see it on the screen. This, this particular verse comes from Luke. Luke 19.41, it says, When he approached Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus, he saw the city and wept. How you interpret that verse has a great deal to do with your personal view of God. What you think of God really affects how you read that verse because the emotions there reveal a great deal about God. It, it reveals what he feels. Did you know that God feels? God has emotion way beyond our emotion. He just keeps his emotions in check. Our emotions get out of control, especially when we watch Middle Tennessee take down the Spartans, right? We, we feel that sense of emotion, rage. God's emotions are always in check, but God feels emotions to a much greater degree than we do. He designed us, he built us in his image. So what we're seeing here are these emotions that God is revealing something because these tears are an evaluation. God, the Son, is evaluating reality. He's looking at a group of people and he knows what's really going on in people's hearts. So these tears are about people. People who are misunderstanding God. You want to use a synonym for that? They misperceive, they misconstrue, they misunderstand God and God's activities and what God is up to. Here's what I understand about this setting. A group of individuals, a very, very large group, have the pinnacle of God's purposes for man right in front of them. God's purposes for man is a relationship with God. That's our highest and greatest purpose. That's what God built us for. And this group of individuals completely miss the opportunity for a relationship with God. If you've ever wondered, what, what is man's purpose on earth? Why am I here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? God answers that question. 
Now let me take you to Acts 17 because I asked you to stick your finger in there and we'll take you there on the screen as well. We've already looked at part of the Passion Week. Let's go into an explanation for what God's purposes is for man. Acts 17, 26 says this. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Why? Why did he make all of us? He says right there in verse 27, that they would seek God. See, it's all about relationship. God built us so that we would have relationship with him. He made from one man every man on the face of the earth. Why? So that we would seek God. So this group who's surrounding Jesus on this particular day that we're looking at, they miss God because they have their own agenda. They have their own preconceived ideas of the way that God will act. So here's the context for the story. Jesus is descending a hill into the capital city, Jerusalem. It's what we commonly refer to in church as Palm Sunday. You'll see why in these verses we refer to it that way. But Jesus is descending a hill, and he's going to arrive in the capital city in a very specific fashion. We, we get this image of God. We've had the image of God crying. Now we get this image of God equestrian, like horseback Jesus, okay? Except in this case, it's donkeyback Jesus. Go, go with me to verse 29 of Luke 19. You'll see it on the screen. He sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. If you've not read this story before, you might be a little confused, like, what is going on? Why is he asking for a donkey? Well, here's what's really clear. He's not saying, go get me a super-stretched white limo, all right? He's not sending them out to get a chariot for him. He says, go get me a donkey. A donkey's really humble. Now, not only a donkey, Scripture says when he sends them to get a donkey, he says, go get a very specific donkey that you're going to find tied up. And what we find in other verses in Scripture is that when they get there, there's a donkey, a mom, and then there's the colt, the foal of a donkey, just a little bugger. Uh, when I think in my mind of Jesus sitting on a colt, I tend to think of my children when they used to ride those big tricycles called big wheels. You guys familiar with that? Right? So they get this monster big wheel in front, and my kids, when they were on the sidewalk, they could never really get those things started right away, so they had to do the Fred Flintstone thing with their feet, try and get that thing started. So I'm thinking Jesus' feet are like dragging on the ground, right? Because he's on this colt, the foal of a donkey. We'll, we'll explain why in just a few minutes, but jump back into the passage with me. Matthew 21, verse 6 says this, the disciples went and did Jesus, just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And that's very familiar. That's what describes Palm Sunday, right? They're whacking off branches off in palm trees. That might be familiar to you, but here's what might not be. In the Middle East, when a king was considered a victorious warrior, Every time he rode into a new region, if he was a conquering warrior or a victorious warrior, when he rode to war, when he rode to represent how powerful he was, he was always on a white horse. That was common visual image for individuals to say, there's the king. He's the one on the white horse. But when a king rode into a city, especially a capital city, for purposes of peace, he would ride on a donkey because the donkey's non-threatening. 
So when people saw the king coming on a donkey, it was a receptive thing like, wow, this king's not here to conquer us. This king's coming in peace. So we see Jesus here not on a war horse. He's riding a donkey. Not just a donkey, the colt the full of a donkey. So this king's coming in peace. And he enters humbly, the humblest of the humblest. This is a match for Scripture. The Old Testament says this in Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. God revealed the truth that this is the way it was going to unfold. When the Messiah comes, this is how you're going to know. So the crowds have a reaction to this. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 21 again. Matthew 21, verse 9. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, resurrection has just taken place within the last week, but not Jesus' resurrection because he hasn't died yet. Resurrection has just taken place within the last week in the form of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus called Lazarus forth from the tomb. Lazarus, come forth! So they got a dead man walking among them whom Jesus has called back from the dead. That'll kind of boost your confidence in the Messiah, right? So confidence is at an all-time high. So they're beginning to have this sense of confidence. This guy is unstoppable. So they take a giant step forward. According to John chapter 12, we get another insight into this moment. Look at this one, John 12, verse 13. The crowd began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So you get a massive group shouting, Jesus for president, right? This is overwhelming to individuals. It's like a political rally. They want to see this guy ruling, and you can't blame them. Blind people can see sunsets for the first time. Deaf people can hear laughter. Disabled people are getting up and walking. Jesus stops storms at the sea. And he's raising dead people. I can't blame them a bit. Here's the problem, though. They've already got a king. His name is Herod. And they've already got a Caesar who's in Rome, who rules over the Roman Empire. So they've got a king and they've got a Caesar, but here's what's really clear. What's really clear as you read this passage is you see that these individuals want a Messiah that will fit their own design. It's very clear that they want a Messiah who will match their expectations. And I find that many people want a designer Jesus just like that. They want a God who will match their own personal agenda. Today, Jesus is totally cool as long as he meets our interpretation of God, what we expect God to do. And when he does not, society curses him. You see it five days later. Jesus doesn't measure up to exactly what they want him to be, and they begin yelling, crucify him. Enough, he's not going to do what we want him to do, then he's not our God we don't need him, but for now, they're content to call him Savior, so they begin using this Hebrew word, Hosanna. If you were here a year ago at, at Palm Sunday, you probably heard me explain this word, but just bear with me for a minute to remind you. This is a Hebrew word. So when they say Hosanna, they're, they're pronouncing it this way, Yashana, because it has a very specific background to it, the, the way that it's enunciated by these individuals. 
It's in your notes this morning if you found that in the bulletin already, but you'll see the word also on the screen. This is a compound word. So yashana, the first part of the word, yasha, is an attribute because it's a name, meaning it can be a noun, but it's also a verb, meaning it's an action word. So just look at the definition there. To be safe, to defend, to deliver, to preserve, to rescue, to get the victory. When it's used as a noun, it's describing the one who can do these things. So when they say, Yasha na, save us na is now. Yasha na, Yasha na, save us now. Oh, bring salvation. So in the Old Testament, you see them using this in the Hebrew language over and over again. When they talk of the God of salvation, they call him Yasha. Well, immediately a thinking person would say, well, saved from what? And, and to what end? In their mind, in that moment, they want to be saved from the political unrest that's going on in their country. And, and so they want to cry out, God, step in now. Bring your power, bring your ability. So in their mind, they're thinking, save us now from this political unrest. They want their Messiah to match their design because it's their agenda. And because it's their agenda, they believe it should be God's agenda. Because it's important to them, they think it should be important to God. But we know God's agenda is always about something much, much bigger. That's what's going on here. I understand human tendency because I are one, right? You are too. And because of our human tendency to create gods of our own choosing, we try and make God match our ideas of what is important to us. You see it throughout human history. Individuals who create gods of stone or gods of wood, and maybe when you look at the Roman Empire, you've seen people on their knees before and they're praying to these little three-inch gods that they put in these little niches in the wall. There's the God of rain and there's the God of wheat and there's the God of fire and the God of thunder and the God of water, and they believe each one of those gods are gonna control some circumstance in their life. Why does humanity to do, do that? Because we create a God to match our desires, what's important to us. So our generation is especially guilty of this. We in 2016 are prone to define God by what culture deems important. It happens in our society today. Here's what I find is a really big one. I find the God of affirmation is really, really popular in our generation. And the mantra sounds something like this. Just follow this progression of thinking. Individuals pick up the Bible and they read about God and they read about his attributes. And they arrive at the conclusion that God is tolerant because God says things like this. I am long-suffering. I am incredibly patient. I am willing to hold off judgment. God is apparently, according as you read the Bible, a very, very tolerant God. And so individuals transfer that thought in their mind of God being tolerant to this thought. Therefore, if God is tolerant, that must mean that he wants everyone to have their own choice of how they should live. So people very quickly jump to this conclusion. What's most important then is the ability to pursue my own choices, especially in America, because we are fiercely independent. And we love to think that we're making up our own mind, our own choices. So here's what it sounds like in modern day America. Let me do what I want, when I want, and how I want, and I don't want to be accountable to anyone. 
That's the fierce mentality of independence that just flows through us. And when we think that way, let me do what I want, when I want, how I want, many times those individuals have forgotten that there is a judgment. There is an accounting coming. A time when we have to stand before God. And here's where it gets really, really uncomfortable. Sorry, this is not Happy Sunday. If you're looking for that, that's next week. Okay, it just gets very dicey at this moment because of some verses I'm going to put on the screen. And if you feel yourself sensing a need to squirm a little bit, don't be surprised. That's not uncommon. Especially when we read things like this, Ecclesiastes 12:14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. God's going to examine everything? Well, we'll come back to that thought in just a minute. Here's the great struggle most people find themselves really wrestling with. We have these first century images burned in our brain from these eyewitnesses who who were there, who actually saw the God-man in action. And so we have these images in our mind, especially on Sunday. We, we, on Palm Sunday, we envisioned this image of this God-man who rides a donkey. Humbly, the colt, the foal of a donkey. And we have this image in our mind of the God-man who cried. And the ultimate image of the God-man who died for us. And all those images are competing in our mind with the counterposition of understanding the God-man also as the one who rides a white Horse. What did we say about a white horse earlier? That's what a victorious conqueror rides. Let me back this up from Scripture. Look with me, and we're talking about future things now. It comes from Revelation 19.11. John is writing about the future, and he says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So in the future, Jesus comes on a war horse, And when he does come, what does he do? He judges. All judgment has been given to the Son. Now, I'm going to just cut to the chase here because our culture desperately needs to hear what you're examining this morning. So I'm inviting you right at this moment just to whisper a prayer up to God. God, if you're going to use this in any way in my life, speak to me right now that I might speak into someone else's life. God knows 2016 America desperately needs what you're about to hear. 2016 America needs a biblical perspective. So here's a biblical perspective for you. Look with me back at Acts 17 again. Acts 17:30. God is now declaring to men that all, all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In a nutshell, that big package is telling us this. Jesus will judge. He's the one who's going to be the judge. And the proof that he will judge is that he was raised from the dead. Bear down with me on verse 30. Just look at it on the screen. One sentence. Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, it's the centerpiece of the resurrection. What we're about to celebrate at the end of Passion Week, a week from today, Easter Sunday, is about way more than Jesus just breathing air again about his lungs allowing him to get up off the the bed and walk out of the tomb. 
It's about what God has just described here for us. The centerpiece of Jesus' resurrection is about two very specific things, and it's in your notes this evening or this morning. You'll see these two things. The resurrection is about the evidence that God accepted Jesus' payment for sin on the cross. When he died, the resurrection is proof that God accepted that as payment for your sin. And the second thing that that is evidence of is that it's proof that Jesus will bring judgment when he returns. That's what Scripture promises to us. So go back to Acts 17.30 again. It says this, He will judge the world in righteousness. That means God's making a guarantee to you, church. God's guaranteeing. He's saying it will happen. Can God lie? Oh, come on. There's more here than that. Can God lie? No, God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. So when God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen, right? Okay, so we're all on the same page on that. God says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So let me give you four verses to back this up. Not just the ones I've put up there so far. And you might want to write these down in your own Bible, maybe in your notes this morning, but they're going to move fairly quickly. Look at how God says it's going to happen. Matthew 24, 27, Jesus speaking himself For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man mean. It's going to be in an instant. Boom. How fast does a lightning bolt happen? Jesus says no one is going to see it coming. It's just going to be flash like a bolt of lightning. Here's the next one, 2 Thessalonians 1.7. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He's saying this is how it's going to happen. Not just that it's going to happen fast, it's going to happen with the angels coming with me. Here's the third one, Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. This is a global event. Here's the fourth one. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. This is Jesus himself speaking. And And will then repay every man according to his deeds. So no wonder Acts 17.30 says people everywhere should repent because there's no avoiding the wrath. There's no avoiding the wrath of God apart from Jesus Christ, right? Okay, you tracking with me? There's no avoiding the wrath. There is a judgment. God says it's going to happen. God the Son condescended to become Jesus the man. Jesus the man who still God said, it's going to happen. And when it happens, it's going to happen fast. And I'm going to be coming on a white horse. And the judgment will take place for all the earth. And everyone will stand before him. And God will make a decision in that moment. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So let's go back into Acts 17 and finish that out. Verse 31 says this. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, meaning through an individual, he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So this is telling me something. It's telling you the same thing. There is coming a day, and it's a fixed day. It's prearranged by God in which he will judge, and with the utmost precision, every thought, every word, every deed will be brought to light. So since this day is fixed and it's approaching, 
How do we respond? That's what we should be asking ourselves. What do I do with this information? Here's the first thing you need to recognize. It'll be on the screen, but it's also in your notes. The very first thing we recognize is that it's the Son who will judge. Now, that should be giving you a degree of confidence if you're a believer in Jesus Christ because of what verse 31 says. He's going to judge in righteousness. Look, look with me on the screen so that I can back that up for you. Look at Revelation 19.1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. See, that's the kind of judge I want. How about you? I want a judge who can't be bought off. I want a judge who's not corrupted or corruptible. I want a judge who always judges in truth and in righteousness, we're told that's who Jesus is. So if that's the first thing we need to keep in our mind, who the judge is, the next thing we should realize is that God says, I got proof of this. Number two, verse 31 says, God furnished proof. How did he do that? By raising him from the dead. See, church, it's all about the resurrection, isn't it? It's all about what we celebrate next week Sunday on Easter morning. It's all about the resurrection. The resurrection is the proof, meaning this. God's saying there's no excuses because the proof is in. Everyone's going to be judged by what they do with this truth. So hear this, especially if you're new to church or maybe these thoughts are completely new to you. To reject Jesus Christ is to open yourself up to the judgment of God. To reject Jesus is to open yourself up to a future judgment because Jesus brings the judgment. Let me back that up from Scripture. John 5, 22, Jesus' own words. He's speaking himself. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So this is cool. Judgment will be delivered by the very one who brought the rescue. That's why nothing less than Jesus is sufficient to meet my need. Because I have guilt. I have sin. Don't sit there looking so self-righteous, because you do too, right? God says all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. So Jesus is my rescuer. Jesus is also the judge who sits on the white throne. And he decides, based on what we do with this truth, are we going to be on his left or on his right? Scripture says he's going to divide people into two groups. Symbolically, he calls it the separation of the goats and the sheep. The goats are going to be on his left and the sheep are going to be on his right. And to the people on his right, he's going to say, judgment my judgment has been rendered, you can enter into the kingdom of God. But for those who are determined to reject Jesus Christ, he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. There was no relationship. You rejected me. So what you believe about God determines what you do next. How do we respond to that? Now, if you're tracking with me so far, this is what I've said so far. I believe, and maybe you're right along the same line of thinking, I believe that the creator of all things, who in this moment sits in royal splendor, dwelling in 
unapproachable light which no man can stand before. At this very moment, he's attended by myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels and all those believers in Christ who have gone before us, who stand before him with their jaws dropped open in awe. I believe that that very one willingly 2,000 years ago relinquished his throne, and this is absolutely crushing to me. I hope it's crushing to you. It is absolutely crushing to me. I say this with profound humility, church. Jesus left face-to-face relationship with God the Father, the intimacy with his Father to come for me. That's what John 1.1 says. He was in the beginning with God because he is God. He was in the beginning with God. Do you feel the weight of this? God the Son left face-to-face intimacy with the Father, willingly left it for you. Philippians 2.7 says he emptied himself because he didn't think at equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself for me. Why? Because God is so determined that you and I would know this truth He didn't just send information. He sent himself because he desperately wants us to know this. So he didn't just leave it up to humans to figure it out on their own saying, I don't want you to guess at this. I'm going to come and I'm going to make it really clear to you and I'm going to explain how God operates. So I'm going to come full circle all the way back around to this last question. How does God respond to us hearing this information? How does God respond when we respond to him? Well, we only have to look back at how God responded 2,000 years ago because God is the same today as he was yesterday and he'll be the same tomorrow, right? Okay, God never changes. Same yesterday, today, and forever. So if we go back 2,000 years in time, how did God respond to the crowd rejecting him? With incredible compassion with tears. They were rejecting the purpose for why he came. And his reaction to them is with compassion. That's the exact same way he responds in 2016. You think you got sin in your life that God can't forgive? Look at the image of God on the donkey riding into Jerusalem who's crying over a group of people who rejected him. See, Jesus looks on with tender compassion. Why? Because he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's your God. So you need forgiveness this morning? Maybe you're in the place where you're not in a relationship with God? I want you to hear this. God gives forgiveness to bursting proportions. I, I wish I could give enough synonyms to describe it. Overflowing, overwhelming proportions. There's no limit to his forgiveness. Let me give you an example as we wrap this up. And it comes from 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Why does he say that? Because he's just been talking about the destruction of planet Earth in the judgment how everything is going to explode, how it's going to melt, how the heavens are going to disappear. 
That's what Peter's been writing about in 2 Peter chapter 3. And he gets to this point where he says, don't misperceive God's patience. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord with him one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See what God's doing right now? The very fact that we're still here is God is restraining judgment. He's held it back. Even though he has fixed a day, no man knows what that day is. He's holding back judgment because he doesn't want anyone lost. But there is a fixed day. So Jesus says, because there's a fixed day, you should know this. Because I don't want anyone to perish, you should know this. Look, look with me on the screen. Look at this verse, John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Amen, church? That is cool. That's Jesus saying, you believe in me? You got eternal life? I personally am going to raise you up. If you're not there yet, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, here's your opportunity. I'm going to stop right now. We've got like three minutes more to go, but I'm going to stop right now. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to what you've just heard. We did this last night in the Saturday night service. People responded and said, absolutely, I am in. I understand what you're explaining. I want to follow Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask everybody in this auditorium to bow your heads and close your eyes right now. And if you're in the place where you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior right in this moment, Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just pray this back to the Father. It's very simple. God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I know, I believe that Jesus came to die for me. I believe that he's your son. And I believe he can take away all my sins. Just utter this back to the Father. God, I need your forgiveness. I want to be called your child. And I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. Don't open your eyes yet, but if you just prayed that, would you raise your hand? I see eight hands. God sees eight hands. God saw the five hands that went up last night. You can put your hands down. Father, I pray for those who just identified themselves as individuals who want to follow Jesus. They have identified that they recognize that Jesus is your son, not just a man, and that he's coming back one day. Father, collectively, we say to you, thank you for the salvation that you've made evident this morning because your spirit did this. Your truth speaks. Your word is alive. So God, I, I thank you for what was just experienced by these individuals. Seal this in their heart. When the, when the tempter comes around to cause them to doubt, cause them to remember this moment in time where they put their stake in the ground saying, no, I have been forgiven by God. Okay, let's come back to this thought with me now. We just say amen in that moment. Thank you, God, right? Okay, by the way, welcome to the family of God. All right, that's cool. 
Okay, so let me ask you to do this. Be in prayer for the 11 o'clock service because right now what we're saying is people are responding to God's truth, right? Okay, people are responding to God's truth because they're hearing the word of God and the Holy Spirit is at work. Now, now hear this thought. If you're feeling a little stressed right now about the judgment, okay, and, and people after the Saturday night service expressed, well, that's like stressful, right? Hear, hear this thought to wrap up. There are two judgments. There's the white throne judgment and there's the Bema seat judgment. Believers in Jesus Christ only stand before the white throne so that Jesus may say to you, you can enter into the kingdom of God. If you're wondering whether or not God's gonna put your entire life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is he gonna put my whole life on display on a big giant screen TV in heaven? And everybody's gonna watch everything I ever did? That is not consistent with scripture. You can't back that up from the Bible. Because God says, I've separated your sins as far as the east is from the west, and I remember them no more, right? So it's called grace, amazing grace. It's a great title for a song, by the way. <laughs> God says, you stand in judgment before me so that I separate the sheep from the goats. At the Bema seat, that's when you get rewards based on what you did for the kingdom. So if you're feeling a little stressed over the judgment this morning, just hear this thought. If God grieves over those who do not know him, those who have rejected relationship, know this. The opposite is true for those who walk in righteousness. This is the appropriate image of your God. Let me put this on the screen to wrap this up. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So he's talking to people who belong to him, right? A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Check this out. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Did you know that God sings? Is that not cool? So if God is singing, there must be a reason for his joy, right? Because God sings loud over you according to this. What you're about to do as we wrap this service up. Michael's gonna lead us in the doxology. You have a chance to really fill your lungs and praise God. So if God sings loudly over us, what's the reason? You and I sing at birthdays, right? We know the birthday tune. We sing when our kids go to sleep at night. We try and do a lullaby. Some of you try, shouldn't probably sing kids to sleep, but <laughs> then, then, then we sing at sporting events, right? We just get filled with patriotism. And, and we also sing love songs. This God of emotion, all those things are going on here. God is rejoicing with joy, and this picture is full of emotion. Check this out. Here's where it wraps up, Luke 15, 10. I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Woohoo! right? Party in the presence of God. So our God not only sings, he sings loudly, because of those who are in relationship with him. Is that you this morning? Is that where you're at? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, know this. You have a great opportunity in front of you this week. Seven days from now, we celebrate Easter Sunday. Most people in America say, I would go to church if someone would just invite me. If you would take the bold step this week and invite a friend to come with you next week, 
I promise you we will find a way to wedge them in here, okay? Okay, take the step, invite someone to come with you because they will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps you'll see that individual come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the great desire. So let's pray that way, church. God, we thank you for the truth of your word that we were able to celebrate this morning. Thank you for the confidence that we don't have to stand in fear of a judgment, but rather we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the rest that's been prepared for you. God, I thank you that that truth applies to those who have identified you as their Savior this morning. Thank you for the new brothers and sisters in Christ who have just identified you as their Savior. We have a lot of reasons to praise you, and we thank you that your word is alive, it's active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. So God, thank you for using it this morning, for penetrating, for working into our lives where you needed to bring conviction and where you needed to bring encouragement and where you needed to bring response. So we fill our lungs with air right now, God, because we're about ready to praise you because you are worth it. You are worth it. And all God's people said, amen.